The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion, Sarah Terry, former staff correspondent of the Christian Science Monitor, who transitioned into photography in the late 1990s. Sarah talks to the projects and life choices made through personal experiences and challenges and the passionate and personal need for photography to illustrate clearly the aftermath of conflict. Welcome to In Discussion today. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Sarah Terry. Sarah Terry is a former staff correspondent and uh, she transitioned into documentary photography in the late 90s. Known her for her published work uh, from September 2005, um, The Aftermath Project, Bosnia's Long Road to Peace. And this really followed a long career, a professional career as a correspondent, and uh, that career surely acted as the preface to this acclaimed uh, and well-known published book, which has created an enormous amount of uh, beautiful photography and storytelling and uh, uh, very, very acclaimed and very well-known. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much. Sarah, tell me a bit about your work uh, as a correspondent. Obviously, everything was leading to this this world that you're in now where you've created this uh, wonderful body of work that we see in the Aftermath Project. Uh, how, how was that being set up and, and how did that career help you to, to uh, arrive at this position now? Um, it, it, it did and it didn't. I'm, I was a staff correspondent for many years for the Christian Science Monitor um, and I covered a lot of international stories and it was the, you know, it's a, it's a well-known newspaper for its international coverage in particular, and also a newspaper that um, has a reputation for kind of going after the stories that others aren't. So I, from my early journalism um, career, I, I sort of had this leaning towards finding stories that weren't being told. But um, the transition to photography wasn't as much a transition as it was just sort of a, a huge um, life change for me. I, I actually had encountered a, um, a fairly difficult experience in my own life um, that caused me to lose my faith in words, and I, I stopped writing. I stopped, in fact, talking to a lot of people I knew, and um, I picked up a camera. And that was the beginning of a process that within a few years led me to Bosnia to do my, um, my own first uh, long-term project about the aftermath of war, Interestingly, it was an article in the Christian Science Monitor <laughs> that, that took me there. It was about the fact that uh, more people than ever before were finally feeling safe enough in Bosnia to try to go home again. And at the same time, the international community was getting Bosnia fatigue, and they were moving on. So the result was the aid wasn't going to be there. And then um, that project was what led me to start the Aftermath Project, uh, because I realized pretty quickly on that nobody was funding... Um, stories or work in post-conflict settings. There weren't really awards for it or recognition for it. Um, all of that went to conflict photography and conflict photographers, 
which is certainly, you know, a critically important uh, area to be working in. But um, as, you know, the Aftermath Project's tagline says, war is only half the story. So it's a, it's, a, it's a continuum and then a slightly, you know, disconnected continuum in my life that's taken me these places. May I ask what that paradigm shift was, uh, what the nature of that was that, that created such a transition from the art of writing to the visualization? Oh, you know, it was a deeply, it was a, um, it was a relationship in my life where, um, the person I was trying to reach or needed needed to reach felt I you know was going down a very disastrous road. Um, I couldn't reach him with words, and I was somebody who had grown up. The joke in my family was that I was born talking. I had always trusted words as um, as a way to persuade people to action, to truth, to I mean I I never would have wound up in advertising. I didn't use words that way, but I had this very kind of you know white horse um, attitude about what what words could accomplish. And when they just failed me so deeply in my own life, I mean, I was just shocked that it, that had, it was the first time in my life that words had just utterly failed me. And um, I, that was it. I, I needed to find another language. And in, in my case, it was when I picked up the camera um, that I, 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 began, I, just, I began finding answers. I just, it was a language that I realized I'd probably been looking for for a really long time. And it's visual. I just found that visual imagery for me is what satisfies me the most and is the, is the conversation that I most want to engage in, whether it's still photography or moving imagery. Well, is that a form of therapy that takes you from expressing yourself as a writer to a visualizer? Uh, and and what, is the, what is the appeal? What is the, uh, the notion that you have that can illustrate you uh, better or, or, or create you or, or make you as a better facilitator or a communicator in photography that, that writing cannot? Well, it, you know, being a journalist, I actually, I was like, it was something I was really good at that I won a bunch of awards at and, and um, it satisfied that part of my personality or anybody's personality, I guess, that like you do something, you get rewarded at it and you keep doing it. Um, but in the case of, you know, that time in my life when, when, I was in the midst of this crisis. I think, to answer your question, I think, yeah, photography was um, healing me. I mean, in that first summer when I began working, I, I began shooting in a way that's very much present in my work today. A lot of fragments, a lot of um, not exactly classic or centered compositions, but sort of very layered and um, uh, somewhat abstract compositions in a way. And I was showing the work to a friend, and I had, during that summer I had taken a bunch of pictures of um, cut-off hands and feet, like, you know, broken feet from statues or, like, somebody's hand reaching into a frame, but all I, you know, shot was their hand in relationship to this other space and showed it to a friend who knew what I was going through. And I said, isn't this weird? You know, I don't know why I'm doing this. And she just looked at me and she said, well, but of course that's why you're shooting it. Your, your life has been shattered and you're trying to figure out how to put the pieces back together again. And I was, like, just dumbfounded to, to sort of go, oh, my gosh, look what photography is telling me about myself. Look what it's telling me about who I am and, and how I'm trying to cope with my own life. So when I came into photography, it was so personal that um, 
I knew immediately I didn't like want to go get all the assignments. I didn't want to try to show that I could be kind of everything to everyone. I'd, I'd done that as a reporter. I'd been a general assignment reporter. I'd worked in everything from, you know, covering politics to humanitarian issues to, I mean, you know, you name it. So as I came into photography, I didn't take the pressure of being a journalist with me. Although I still had the interests that I had as I moved through my own kind of personal experiences and, and re-engaged with the world around me again, that's, that's where the, the work in Bosnia came in, I still cared about the same things, but I didn't have, um, I didn't worry about whether I was filtering, you know, filtering it through a journalistic point of view. The work is much more engaged. It's, it's still, I still bring journalistic, you know, sort of standards to it when I'm working on a documentary project, but it's just, um, I just think there's a way, you know, when you're a writer, you control the information. I mean, I, I think I was at my best as a writer when I would do interviews, listen to all sides, try to make sense, you know, of a story, and write something that was balanced. Um, I mean, we're all biased because we're humans, but, you, you know, you do hope that, that you've learned to be objective as if you're a good journalist. Um, but there's a con- ultimately, when you sit down to write, you're controlling information, you're structuring it, and it's a real pain in the neck. And in photography, for me, all I'm doing is is being absolutely responsive to the place and the moment that I'm in. I don't control anything. It's all I can control is me being present and and me paying attention. And and I, for me, that's just hugely releasing. Um, and and it's it's why taking pictures um, is is the most satisfying thing. I mean, I'm making a documentary now, um, and it's more like being writing a story again because you go out, you get the information, and then you have to structure it and put it together. It's satisfying, but for me, it's not like picking up a camera and looking for. I mean, I, I, photos are there. I never feel like I have to go, you know create an image or stress about an image. I, I've never not come back from what I'm doing without having the photographs that I needed because I think it's just there and all I need to do is, is respond to it and be ready for it. And I, I just love, I love that complete lack of control. The, this, this raises the strength of photography not only as a medium but as a way, way to heal. Um, hmm. uh, now that is enormous in itself that it can heal you as a person. Now, how do you translate that once you have found yourself, you have delivered yourself in pain, you found something that you are so committed to and you have so much conviction for, from that uh, that remit to then ensuring that your audience is getting it, that they understand what you've been through and that you can translate that and educate them about where you're at and why you're doing this and what it is that they need to get out of it? Um, I think... I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough question, but for me, I think it relates to the fact that um, as personal as photography is, or as personal as it is to me in the way I want to you know, be present in those stories. I'm still interested in having a conversation. I know photographers who go, oh, yeah, I, I just shoot and I put it in the drawer and I don't care about it, which I think is pretty bogus. I, I actually think that I, I didn't stop wanting to have conversations just because I stopped writing, although I do write essays now. Um, but 
I wanted to have conversations that just came from a different place. And so in making photographs, um, I'm still wanting to have a conversation. I'm still wanting to elicit a response. So there, there are ways that you then do that. You know, do you put your work on a website? Yes, you can. You know, for me with the Bosnia Project, it was really important that that come out as a book because there was kind of one moment in time when I was going to be able to get a general or a wider audience at least to focus on the aftermath of the war in Bosnia. And that was the 10th anniversary of the end of the war in Bosnia, which is when that book came out. But then, you know, the part of me that is very committed to being engaged with the world and in, I don't know that I'm personally like trying to change the world. I'm just really interested in getting people to care about the world. Because I think if you care about things, you're going to think about things. And then if you think about things, you're far more likely to take action. I'm not interested in prescribing the action that I think you should take, but I want you to care about the world that you're in. So um, in, when somebody, when a uh, photographer asked me about my Bosnia work, when he said, you know, what influence do you want this work to have? I, I hadn't even thought about that because I was still in this kind of very personal space of working. But as I did think about it, I thought, well, you know what I think would be really great? If, if, like, there was a generation of photographers that came along that wanted to be aftermath photographers, not just conflict photographers, because that's what a lot of people aspire to. And um, so I kind of thought that was a great answer. <laughs> and then I had to, like, go, yeah, and just because you're doing a project about a war that we pretty much ignored in the first place, you really think it's going to make that kind of change? And, you know, yeah, no, it's not going to. So I, I, when I talk about the Aftermath Project, I often say, I have no idea why there wasn't a filter in my mind that day that would have said, this is hard work, or what are you thinking of? But it wasn't there, and the answer that I came up with was that I could start a grant program. So that's how I created this larger conversation. I, I want other photographers to be able to work in the aftermath of conflict settings. We've... You know, the program, we're just entering our fourth year of granting, and we've given out over $100,000 over the first four years and produced some, you know, helped photographers produce some really interesting work. And we do a book, and we give talks, and, you know, we're trying to develop curriculum. So I think that's a pretty long answer to your question. I I actually answered the question about having a conversation. No, it's actually a super long answer to a super long, complicated question, but... (laughs) The, the 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 reason behind the question I'm I'm guessing here is that contextually I I look at the responsibility that you have as a correspondent, and I am not sure that photographers. This is ge- a generalization, but I'm not uh-huh. sure that that responsibility is seen in the photographer's mind, but. In, in yourself, you have come from that correspondent mentality, that uh, responsibility that you have. Uh, and I'm sure that you have uh, taken that on with you into photography and you have a much better sense of purpose I- in your work. It, you know, I'm going to defend um, photographers on, on, uh, in, in your, your comment there. And I, they're some of the most committed people I've ever met. They can be a real pain in the neck. Photographers as kind of solo creators can be uh, difficult and divas, but they're passionate. And I found that the photographers I know are often better um, prepared and more well-researched than a lot of the writers, reporters that I ever knew. 
and they're doing really committed long-term projects. It's just we don't live in a media environment where that work is being seen. But I'm just, you know, was looking at an email today from a photographer named Ed Kashi, who's done an amazing project on um, a, a country you know, Nigeria, on, um, on oil in the Niger Delta. And he just sent out an email today about global climate change in, and sent out links to like three or four photo projects that are out there where people are documenting the effects of global warming. And so I, I think photographers, um, a lot of photographers actually are, are, are really activists. And they're just frustrated because they don't have the outlets for their work. What is it uh, in your mind that is lacking in the journalistic field, in the media field? I'm asking you this clearly because the Aftermath <laughs> Project is about uh, uh, providing uh, clarity as to how a country rebirths itself. Mm. Um, what, is, what is it that you're trying to uh, achieve there? And, and, and is, is that not so different uh, to the way it's been done before? If you look back at Vietnam or, or Korea or any other conflict, uh, the journalism, the photography has been very much based around the conflict itself rather than looking at the consequences afterwards. Uh, what is it that led to you to, to take that view and to go down this path with this project? Well, it, it, it ties back a bit to what I said earlier when you asked me about having been a reporter. And I would say, you know, being at a place like the Christian Science Monitor, which had a much broader view on what is, is news, you know, quote-unquote news, that it, you know, things that the mainstream media doesn't identify as news really is news. And, you know, to answer your question first, I think about what the media is lacking. I think it is a sense of context and perspective. I think it is the willingness to more broadly define what news is. Um, I think it's um, this for you know for, there's, there's some small elite group in the world. I mean, I've, I've been a journalist for a long time. I know the whole argument of oh, that's news or that's not news, but um, there's some small elite kind of group of thinkers that that you know in the I think in the editorial world that kind of goes no, that's not news because it doesn't show. Um, conflict. It doesn't show things, you know, falling apart. Um, and I, it, it takes really a radical sort of insistence that says, you know what, this is news. It is news to find out what on earth makes, you know, a Bosnian Muslim couple that were, you know, forced to flee their homes because of, of hardline um, Bosnian Serb nat- nationalists. That couple at the end of that war wants to go back to that very home in that very neighborhood and try to rebuild. Like, I'm fascinated by what is it in the human spirit that wants to do that. You know, I'm fascinated by the periods in aftermath where things aren't getting better. You know, where they're, they're like, they're essentially the, the, the prologue to the future. They're a warning that a conflict may happen again. The media is not, by its nature, a reflective or introspective, you know, a way of looking at the world. Something's happening, therefore you cover it, it's news, and it's much harder. I mean, <laughs> photographers who, who know, um, you know, the photographers who know, they'll pick up the, my, my book about Bosnia. I had one guy look at me, and he just said, oh, my gosh. He goes, you stood and waited for a really 
really long time to make this book, didn't you? And I laughed, and I was like, yeah, there were probably two events, you know, kind of quote-unquote news events. There was the, the um, reopening of the Mostar Bridge, which had been destroyed, and it was the return of the filmmaker Donis Tanovich to Sarajevo when he won the Oscar for his film about the war, No Man's Land. Those were two, like, events where there were people around, and there were also, I should say, the exhumations where their bodies were being exhumed from mass graves, part of the uh, genocide against Bosnian Muslims. But apart from that, the book is filled with images that are metaphorical, that are observational. You know, they aren't the classic news image, and, and, they, and they, don't, they take more um, thought to read them. They're more ambiguous. They have a lot more um, variety of meanings within them. That's not a world that the media is um, by nature comfortable with. So the whole, you know, long-term, beyond-my-lifetime goal of the Aftermath Project is to change the way the media covers conflict. And it's also to educate the public about the real cost of war and the price of peace. You know, that it doesn't just happen. We don't live in a world anymore where people understand the necessity of something like a Marshall Plan. I, you know, I say this. We send a copy of um, the Aftermath Project book, each our yearly book, to every U.S. senator. And I you know, include a note which says, you know, it's impossible to have a public... Um, that will support long-term foreign policy goals if they don't understand, you know, the cost of what's involved. And well, I, I don't uh, think we have a population that would support a Marshall Plan today. Well, that must make it even more of a challenge for you uh, in, <laughs> in, in, in promoting this, because not only do you have your photography, you have the journalistic element here, you have the challenge of publishing the book, of raising the finance, but the bigger challenge is pushing against that trend that we have with the media that, well, it's news, but it's not really news, is it? Because it's not a, it's not a building falling down or somebody being right. uh, put up against a wall somebody and shot. So, yeah. so how do you, how do you uh, approach that problem? Because that must be a problem, because now you have this wonderful body of work, you have it uh, channeled, and distributed to the right places. Now, how do you make it more accessible to the to the wider public? H how is it, and who who is it that you can engage to achieve that? You know, it's just it's it's um, if I was trying to act against something, I think I'd get overwhelmed. I think I'd get tired out um, because you're marshalling all your energies in reaction to something else. So the way I started the work and the way I continue it, and it's really organic, like we have a shoestring budget. I, you know, if you have anybody listening who's interested in helping with an endowment, put them in touch. You know, <laughs> we need all the help we can get. We'll, take your, we'll, we'll make sure that we provide your website before the end of the program, Sarah. <laughs> Indeed. But it's, I marshal my energies towards saying, this is what I believe, and this is what is. You know, so, um, and, and I find increasingly, you know, I think we'll reach a tipping point with the Aftermath Project. I, more and more I hear from people saying, wow, this is really critical work. You know, I, I, I feel like I named the elephant in the room. I didn't invent anything. I just sort of said, why don't we know the other half of the story of war? And people get that right away. But it's, I had a photo curator say to me recently, um, 
he was including some of my own aftermath work in an exhibition, and he said, you've defined a whole new genre of photography with the Aftermath Project. And I said, I don't think I have. I said, I think I, it's always, it's, you know, I just named something that everybody knew. And he said, yeah, but it hasn't come into being before. So that in the photo world, it's being identified as a, as a place, as a genre, as something to aspire to, you know, that I meet photographers who call themselves aftermath photographers, that I, you know, I go to universities um, and give talks. I'm um, trying to raise the money right now. There's a, one of the leading curriculum developers in the United States is very interested in developing curriculum um, around the aftermath project to go into high schools around the U.S. And to me, that is absolutely the most important thing of what we can do. You know, if First, we have to give the grants, because if people aren't making the stories, you don't have anything to talk about or to have to share or to engage people in conversation over. So you have to help support photographers. And then you have to have the book that we do each year. That's like the second core piece. I mean, I, I just do what I can do without, you know, like overburdening myself. But then there's the book, because that helps people have the conversation. And then to me, the third real linking part is, gonna, is the curriculum that will go into schools, because that's where, that's where you have to start changing the way people think. It's got to be in schools. It can't be, you know, uh, gee, once you're grown up, could, you ch- you know, could we start talking about public policy? And then um, one other arm that we'll be looking at for our, around our 50th anniversary is um, exhibitions, which I'd be hoping to do in kind of three or four um, places, London, uh, one of the journalism schools in Missouri, Los Angeles, and the exciting thing to me about those exhibitions is that instead of just showing the work of Aftermath grant winners, I want to combine, we'll pick five or six people um, who've done Aftermath work, and then I want to show their work in relationship to a photographic body of work about the conflict. So you'll have, you know, this, one of our 2010 grant winners is doing the Aftermath of, of Wounded Knee, the Indian um, uh, massacre in the United States. Obviously, that's a somewhat, it, it's an older um, massacre, but we'll use archival photographs and stories to show, to ha- and then have Danny Wilcox Fraser's project of pres- the aftermath in the present day of that story. Um, so it, we'll be connecting the two parts of the story together so that it proves, you know, that we show our, our contention that war is only half the story. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. And I was going to ask the question. Uh, are you going to return to Bosnia and perhaps solicit photographers from uh, from Bosnia that can become involved in this project? You know, we've had in the course of the the grant program, there've probably been three or four proposals from Bosnia, a couple from Kosovo, um, which is in the region. We had a very strong application this year about the aftermath of war in Serbia, which is a very interesting way at looking at the aftermath. Um, in a country where that country had been the aggressor and looking at the aftermath of war there. It wasn't quite strong enough to make it into the final cut. Um, I, I was in Bosnia in 2007 doing some um, finishing work. I, I had received a, an Alicia Patterson Fellowship for my work in Bosnia, and I had some work to finish on it. For me personally, um, although I think the, the aftermath of, of conflict stories continue and abound in Bosnia and the Balkans. I said what I had to say. You know, I spent five years doing that work, so 
I don't personally feel drawn to go back there. I'm always interested to see what proposals are coming forward. Like, and I said that one from Serbia was a wonderful twist uh, on considering what aftermath is. And I would imagine at some point we, we probably will fund a grant from there because the Balkans, you know, has been the heart of so many of the most uh, significant conflicts of the 20th century. I don't think that's going to change in the 21st. Well, uh, and, and that's why I was asking this, uh, the question, Sarah. What was it that led to you to the Balkans in the first place rather than anywhere else in the world? I mean, I realize the genocide there was quite dreadful and probably the worst that we've seen since the end of the Second World War. But what uh, decision was it uh, that, that you had to make uh, that, that particularly chose that area? It was, um, I, I think I mentioned it just a bit at the, uh, earlier in the show. I, but I'll expand on it. I was, I'd only been shooting for a year or two, and I was looking for a subject that would be a good subject for a long-term photo project. Because, you know, if you're going to do a long-term project, which is, you know, kind of two years or more, it's really got to be something you want to work on for that long. And um, I was reading an article on the Christian Science Monitor about um, Srebrenica, which is where the 1995 massacre of Bosnian Muslims happened when um, the, the United Nations safe haven of Srebrenica was overrun by Bosnian Serb forces and some 8,000 Muslim men and boys were killed. Um, and in fact, it was one of the key events that finally got the West um, involved in that conflict. But it, was, it said that uh, people were finally wanting to go home. And um, they were feeling safe enough to try to go back to places from which they had been, to use that horrible term of that war, cleansed, which is somehow you know became this polite word for for genocide. And um, the problem was that the humanitarian world was uh, getting what they called Bosnia fatigue, and they were moving their resources onto the next humanitarian crisis, which at that time was in um, East Timor. So the result was that only 22 percent of the people who wanted to go home were going to get help to go home. And this in a war that had one of the founding principles of the Dayton Peace Accords, which ended that war, one of the founding principles was the right of everyone to return home. And literally, that did it. I was sitting, I can remember I was sitting at my desk, at my feet on the desk, I was reading the paper, just like that. I read it, plopped my feet on the floor, walked upstairs to my husband and said, you know, I found the project, it, I'm going to Bosnia. I said, I cannot believe that yet again, you know, we're, we're living in this quick fix, short-term world that thinks that five years is enough for people to get over the worst genocide since the end of World War II. And it just, it pushed every button in me in terms of, I, I, I think we're just a quick fix culture. You know, we want to think, throw money at something or, oh, you know, gosh, it's been a, it's been a year. You ought to be better, really, because we've got to move on now. We're going to go do other things. You know, we're just, we just like have that, that jump cut edit mentality that just moves and doesn't think deeply. And um, that article just pushed every button in my body. I'm not, everybody in Bosnia used to say to me, why are you here? Are you Bosnian? I was like, no, I didn't cover the war. I'm not Bosnian. I'm not connected to it. But in fact, you know, it, it, it pushed every button in me about, about aftermath. And, 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 the, and the question, what does it mean to be human? You know, if war tells us what it means to be inhuman, I want to know the story of what it means to be human. So that's where that project came from. And that's, um, it just, it, it, you know, it's, it's taken off and it's kind of been the guiding um, 
point of everything from there. So it was just that one newspaper article. And, you know, six weeks later, I was in Bosnia for the first time. Okay, let's, uh, let's move into that area of your life. Sure. You, you left the United States and you moved to Bosnia. And, uh, I just, just so you know, I traveled to Bosnia. I never lived there. I didn't live there in that full term. I traveled back and forth about 12 times. I understand. Uh, yeah. you, camera in hand. Uh, yes. Very uh, committed, a uh, huge conviction, uh, possibly a huge shift in your life. And you arrive in Bosnia, um, clearly, from what I understand, of, uh, in some way, uh, healing, he- going through a healing process uh, mm-hmm. and, and having that camera to uh, assist you with that. Now, you go from that phase and you go into Bosnia and you must have come across, uh, you know my background, when I, when mm. I was in Nigeria. It is startling and, of course, you could, you could never define or describe that to, to many people here. They wouldn't understand it. But right. you, went, you went into that, uh, th- that situation uh, with the camera, with that healing, uh, healing process taking place. Now, what happened then for you as a visualizer and as a human being when you encountered the, the genocide and, and, and the aftermath? And, and yet on the other side of that, the human spirit that wants people to return to their homeland. I think I was overwhelmed at first by, you know, just the magnitude of what had happened there. I was overwhelmed by the history of the war photography that had come out of there and the people, so well-known photographers who'd done that work, and, and I was still just so young as a photographer. I was overwhelmed by trying to understand the complexities of the, um, the, the, of what had led to that war, I was the journalist in me, um, you know, was still kind of thinking, okay, now how do I tell this story responsibly? Um, you know, you, you, I'm, every time I was around one of the exhumation sites, you know, I was, it's over, it was overwhelmed by the hatred that had caused those, those, those mass killings. But um, I think just... I think I found my way step by step because of the people who were there, because like of the, of who, the man I mentioned, you know, who'd been forced to leave his home, and I stood with him, and he had to, he was living in temporary housing, you know, maybe a quarter of a mile from where his house was because it was occupied by Bosnian Serbs who'd taken over his house after they'd pushed him out, and he just said, you know, I want to go home, I want to I want to go back to my home, and and then I like six months later I visited him again and, and when I visited him this time he was back in his home again they, the international sort of laws that were forcing Bosnia to start working again and to, to restore property and, and it was, you know I sat in this man's garden and, and had you know incredibly strong Balkan tur- Turkish coffee and, and you know there's this just amazing joy you know that he, that he was home again and and uh, you know, and of course, other people chose never to go home again in Bosnia, and that's another part of what it means to be human. You know, there's there can be great sorrow in that, and um, I, you know, I found my way step by step. I learned how to be able to be in the exhumation pits and around all those exhumed bodies because of two forensic anthropologists who believe that their work in in you know taking these bodies out of these mass graves and and cleansing the bones and and helping to, you know, people identify the bodies, you know, they believed it was a way of giving back life 
to those who had been killed. It was a way of restoring their name and their identities to them. And you know, the the chapter in the book that's called Love and Death, which is about the exhumations, it's a little tiny chapter. It, it begins, I wrote an essay for it that begins with the line, you know, if I have become comfortable in the presence of bones, it is because of Eva and Piotr. So, you know, there, it was people. It was it was people who who who, <laughs> who taught me their stories and who 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 reminded me of what it means to be human. And it's just I just tried to I tried to be able to present that over those four or five years and to make a, a body of work that presented a way of remembering, of looking back, looking forward, you know, looking into the present. Um, that that didn't let you walk away and think everything was fine just because the guns had stopped. But nevertheless, Sarah, when you did finally leave, did you leave with a positive frame of mind? Did you feel good about where they were and uh, good about yourself in the the ability of, of, of your camera and, and your mind being able to fully cover that emotion, that upheaval. Uh, how did you feel about that in yourself as a, as a human being standing there watching this uh, and, and, and experiencing to a great extent what they had been through and then knowing that you, you needed to, at the end of the day, depart and, and return home yourself? I think I felt that I had done an honest job. I think that I had shown, you know, within the work that, for example, that that Bosnian Serbs, in some cases, in some ways, were victims of that war as well. I think I made a nuanced body of work. I think I um, I made images that I was proud of. Um, you know, as a as a photographer, I felt I had done work that you know could stand on its own, um, and it was a um, a story that hadn't been told. Um, I can't say that I was wildly optimistic about the Balkans. Um, you know, the, that, the, the terms that ended the war in Bosnia created a political infrastructure, essentially a, bi, uh, a two-state nation that is unworkable and that the Bosnians themselves have, you know, have pointed out is an unworkable nation. So, um, yeah, I think there, I, I left there with the feeling there were a lot of, of warning signs about what could come in the future. Um, I, when I returned in 2007 for a brief period of time, I was impressed that the, the very youngest generation, kids who had been really children during the war, were um, more adamant about reasserting friendships across the ethnic divides there of Croatian, which is Catholic, um, Serb, which is Orthodox, and Bosniak, which is, is Muslim, I found uh, um, the youngest generation uh, trying to, you know, build those friendships again, which was encouraging. But, I don't know, the Balkans is the Balkans, you know. It's, it's people there believe that, that, you know, every 50 years or so there, there's going to be a war. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. What does that, uh, how does that drive you now, uh, Sarah, in your work as you're you're back here and you're presenting this enormous body of work and the effects of the aftermath and and to uh, prove the the rebuilding of a civil society one by one 
Um, where is it that you go from here? Is there a bigger picture for you? Is there a bigger role as an ambassador uh, rather than just being that visualizer? Um, I think the Aftermath Project, in a way, forces me to be, um, you know, uh, I don't know, a spokesperson of sorts on the subject, um, which isn't something I necessarily wanted. I'd really, you know, in a lot of ways, rather have somebody else do that. Um, but I, I get that, that I'm kind of the first one to have, like, named the issue and articulated it in such a way. So, um I love that engagement. You know, I've been invited to human rights conferences, to, you know, to, to, to like, universities, to all kinds of places where I can talk about these issues. And that matters to me a lot. I mean, there is there's that part of me that, that really wants to help people think in new ways. Um, but it isn't... I, I don't know. I can't, I can't do that by trying to, like, thinking there's something out there I have to change... I think it's more like the the only way I can do that work without absolutely exhausting myself is it's more the feeling that there's just something that that wakes up. It's already present. It just needs to be catalyzed or activated. Because if I felt I had to bring that to people, I'd, that would just be horrendous. You know, I also don't think it's a very good way to look at humanity. But I think there's a goodness in people that you know is present and alert, and in some cases sound asleep in people. But but that it just it needs to be addressed and 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 called forth. You know, it's it's in this year's book from the Aftermath Project, which is called War Is Only Half the Story, Volume Two. I wrote about a friend's reaction to the to the uh, Aftermath Project, and she had said, you know, what we shine a light on is what grows, and hopefully the work of the Aftermath Project grows peace. And um, I wrote a, a bit about that in, in my introduction. I just said, you know, if the only stories we hold up are stories of conflict or war, or there are, are stories of what it means to be inhuman. If that's what we shine a light on, then what grows? And I think the work of the Aftermath Project is to be shining a light on this whole different story. You know, and, and I, I think the Aftermath Project, at its best, is constantly reframing the question of what does it mean to be human? Because what it means to be human is this is a universal thing. It transcends, you know, sort of nationalities and cultures. And, and you know, if, 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 if I could get, you know, a, a widow in the United States to care about a widow in Bosnia through, you know, one of the images that's in my work, which has happened several times, it, it's a connection, you know, it's a caring. So it's a, and, and the caring, as I said before, I think is what leads to thinking, and thinking is what leads to action. So it's a, I think it's just more about, about awakening a conversation. It's not trying to, to um, battle some other force. It's just a way of saying, you know what, there's a whole different way of looking at the world. And let's talk about that, and um, let's see what happens if these are the questions we, we frame. Let's, let's explore what it means to be human. And, you know, I find it's a conversation people want to have, so I'm, I'm encouraged. It's, it's just it's a step-by-step process, and, you know, it's why I always say it needs an endowment, because it's going to go well beyond my lifetime. Well, this has definitely uh, 
brought us to a segue, which is extremely important from my perspective, of looking at the photography, your passion, mm. and understanding what it is that takes you into documentary film. I, I've been a photographer for many years, and that's how it's ha it happened for me. I was a photographer for years, and then I moved yeah. into writing and documentary film, and it almost just seems to be a, a natural process. Um, <laughs> but what is it for you? Now, I, I'm uh, very interested in that uh, conviction you have for the, the human presence, the, the way that humans feel, the, the way that we're, we're all guided down this road, uh, strangely enough at times the, the, the wrong road uh, and given the wrong information uh, in, in what you talk about centered on conflict rather than uh, resolution afterwards but what is it now that and having seen uh, your in progress documentary what is it that you see in the documentary film work that is different from the photography what do you hope to achieve there to your audience um, the the documentary you're, refer, you're referring to actually grew out of a still photography project that I'm still working on, which is called Forgiveness and Conflict, Lessons from Africa. And I was exploring um, post-conflict traditions of forgiveness in Sierra Leone, Liberia, northern Uganda, and ultimately I hope to include Rwanda in the project. But in Sierra Leone, I met a man who had this incredible, he's a Sierra Leonean, so this amazing, amazing idea for um, a grassroots program of truth-telling and forgiveness based on the traditions of Sierra Leoneans. Not a special court, not a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, both things that the international community had sort of brought into Sierra Leone and spent um, hundreds of millions of dollars on, and still there, w there, had, there had been no reconciliation um, at the local level between people. And I, I was so blown away by it, this idea. I introduced him to the woman I had been collaborating with who was helping to fund my work. They became collaborators and launched this program called Fumble Talk, which means family talk in Creo. It's a, it's a reference to solving conflict um, by coming together as family at the table to talk things through um, without recriminations. And um, in, in that process, I just wanted to keep taking photographs. I actually tried to get somebody else to direct the documentary. Um, I, I was in many ways like the reluctant director because the other person was like, well, but you, you know the story, you should help direct. And, and, and then it just became really clear that, that the other, it wasn't going to work another way. And I, I needed to be the person, person who was directing the documentary because I understood it. And I had a way of approaching the story that that reflected my sensibilities, everything we've just talked about, about the non-typical media approach to telling a story. There's this conflict, and that gets solved. That, that there was another way of telling that story. So um, it is, we've, we've done five production trips filming in the field, and we're editing the film now. It's a long process, you know. It's, it's, it, as, you, as, you, as you know yourself, it, it's a, you know, the immediate joys for me of making a photograph in the moment. I have it or I don't have it. it you know, and the subject is, it, it's done. Um, a film goes on and on and on and on forever. And it's, <laughs> but it, what I've realized is, um, 
a documentary film is going to have a far broader impact. It's going to launch a much larger conversation than a still photography project is. So while I will always be a photographer, while I will continue the still the forgiveness project as a still photography project, while you know it's it's the thing that I love most, um, I you know am ha- happy to be moving into the world of, of making documentaries. In fact, we just got a Sundance grant. Um, they just announced it today, although I've known for a little while for the film. Um, the Sundance Documentary Institute really loves uh, Fumble Talk, our film and. It, the film itself is also even at its work in progress stage. It's sparking a lot of conversations in the international um, policy community about transitional justice, about the fact that the international community does not take um, local uh, traditions and cultures into account really at all in post-conflict um, work. So it's exciting to see. Uh, I mean, this will probably have more impact than anything I've done in my life, and I've had some pretty extraordinary opportunities as a journalist to, to do things that haven't been done before. But it's um, on a personal level, I think the film for me has been really refreshing because you know the, the in the Balkans there's not a tradition of forgiveness. There's a lot, and that the last war there, I think, further hardened a lot of attitudes and reawakened rivalries that had been suppressed um, under Tito, who refused to let people talk about what had happened in the past. Um, So there was a hardened sense there. And to be exploring this tradition and culture now that that has a mandate of forgiveness, that, that, that understands that, that, you know, revenge is just not an option if you don't want to have generational conflict. You know, the clarity of people saying, but yeah, you, you have to talk about it. It's like you, you have to acknowledge what you've done. You have to apologize and explain why you did it. And you apologize. But then the cultural mandate in Sierra Leone is that the victim forgives you. It, it's just that, that is the response. It's not a long, drawn-out thing. The reconciliation that follows takes time. You learn to work together again. The, you know, the community itself supports that reconciliation. But, you know, so for, to be in a world where forgiveness is, is, is not just a, you know, something that's talked about it, but something that's lived, has been amazing. And it's, it's also taught me one other lesson, I think, in my own journey and in, um, of the healing that's gone on for me over several years, which is um, we have to be responsible for our own goodness. We have to defend it, and we have to act on it. You know, I think the world um, is constantly trying to sort of destroy goodness. And, and certainly the way the stories we tell in the media, you know, are about how we destroy it regularly. Um, there, you know, uh, any story of conflict, maybe it's the occasional heroic story, but for the most part, it's really about how we destroy what is good. And I think that's, I've learned that too, that it's up to each one of us to identify what is good in ourselves and to act on it, because nobody else is going to do it for us. And I, I'm, I, you know, I've just seen that within this um, context in Sierra Leone. And I'm, I'm utterly humbled by these people and, and I think the lessons that they have to teach us. And to be able to make a documentary about that, to have an organization like Sundance, you know, Documentary Institute supporting it. You know, I, I know that as that film comes out within the next, I don't know, six to nine months, that the opportunity that we have to have a big conversation, one about the what forgiveness is and what it can or can't do in our lives, 
and two, the idea that we don't we shouldn't really be talking about saving Africa. You know, we should be talking about learning from Africa. That's that's pretty satisfying as somebody who likes having conversations. What is it that, uh, in the closing minutes of the program, Sarah, yeah. what is it that uh, you would like to achieve in the future? Is it possible that you may return to writing and uh, uh, place more presidents on that? What is it that you want to achieve in, in this absolutely amazing project? Hmm. Um, I'll write, but only in relationship to my visual work. You know, I, that makes sense. Um, I want to make more documentaries, um, and I want to keep picking up that camera, and you know, in front of my own face and being present um, to see what it means to be human. You know, those are deeply satisfying to me. And um, I would love, if I could, at the end of my life, look back, and if the only thing I had accomplished was that the Aftermath Project um, was established as a viable organization, you know, with a guaranteed funding. And it, that it was, you know, in schools and in conversations and, you know, being covered, um, I would think that I'd lived a good life. And uh, with that said, do you <laughs> think that all the, the, the torment and the anguish and the pain that we go through as human beings and as artists, as photographers, uh, and that journey that you've taken, do you think that this has relinquished you of of all of those pressures that you've had in your life and that photography itself can be looked upon as a uh, as a wonderful attribute uh, in in giving you so much joy mm. photography saved my life i mean yeah that's why i'll never not you know i'll never stop taking pictures that's why you know no it's it's for me it's the key to everything and um, I would never have traded the stuff that preceded, you know, the difficult times that preceded me becoming a photographer because I never would have become a photographer. And I think, um, I, I think in some way, even though it may take years and years to see it, that, you know, the experiences in our lives that seem the most devastating, um, I think they can, in fact, become the paths that, that, that show us you know what's true and who we are or who we can be and you know what matters so it's it's uh you know you never wish those hard times on anybody but i think when you make a choice about how you're going to deal with them that there's a lot of of um a lot of good to be found in those experiences if you're just not afraid to walk through the fire Sarah Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. We wish you so much luck with your Aftermath project. If you would kindly, could you just let our listeners have the official website and any relevant information as to how they can receive more information? Yes, please visit um, www.theaftermathproject.org and they can find out how to apply for grants or how to buy our books. Um, you know, they can contact us there on that website. Um, in the next month, you'll be able to go to um, fumbletalkthemovie.com. That's F-A-M-B-U-L-T-O-K, fumbletalkthemovie.com, to learn more about the program and the film in Sierra Leone. Sarah Terry, it's been a great privilege talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. And to our listeners, I do hope that you have enjoyed in discussion today. If you need any further information on this or any other program that we have in our schedule, you can go to davidgibbons.org. And, of course, you can visit our blog, where I'm sure that our guests will be delighted to answer any comments or feedback that you may have, wherever you may be in this world. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.